the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Bobby Stroop. Bobby is the founder and president of Accelerate Performance Enhancement Center. Uh, Coach Stroop has directed human performance systems for over 17 years after getting started at the high school level for coaching legend G.A. Moore, Texas's all-time winningest football coach with 11 state championships and track and field combined. So welcome onto the show, Bobby. Glad to be here today. Glad to talk to you. So, Bobby, before we delve into today's episode, can we go back and kind of follow your journey, um, obviously through coaching, and kind of get a sense of your upbringing and what kind of brought you into what you do now as coaching? Absolutely, and I'll try to keep it short if there's any other things you you want to expand on just feel free to to ask as we go Uh, but I feel like my story isn't unique and then most of us as coaches started off with some type of a selfish desire or or something that we're looking for for ourselves. and for me it was pretty simple I wasn't very good and so (laughs) my my dad and and uh, my family tried to help me in any way that I could find resources and ways to improve my own personal athletic performance and for a kid that was usually picked last on the playground and was the smallest kid in his grade um, boy or girl until almost in high school it was it was something that was a part of my life from an early age and I remember watching on tv uh, in where I'm from Texas A&M and Texas are a huge rival and, and my parents were Aggies and so we would watch players, and if we we saw a good player that we liked, we'd figure out what what is it they do. And if we saw them wearing a weighted vest, my dad would go get the weighted vest. And if we found out they did bleachers, we would do bleachers. And so from an early age, uh, training was a, a part of a part of my life. And as I got older, I really I really learned the value of of those things. And then my focus began to shift to really enjoying helping people. And enjoying that more than sport itself. So even though I had a very uh, short uh, career myself, uh, I wasn't very good. I, I really knew from a young age that I I loved working with people and I loved training and I loved this profession. I didn't know how I would make a way for myself as a career, but I knew that it's what I wanted to do. And kind of what you didn't touch upon there is obviously for my listeners that are in the U.S., would know that Texas and football, well, I'll put it the other way around. Football in Texas is a religion, which are some, probably some of the other listeners that are, that are coming from us from across the world wouldn't know. So kind of that mindset, obviously you talk about you were quite uh, a small kid. Do you think you were kind of on a back foot from the off then? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a religion here, but there's a lot of great sports and competitive um, sports that are here that, that definitely don't want to disrespect or, or take a back seat to American football. But that was in the forefront of my mind at the time. It was probably an unwise choice for me uh, because <laughs> I was probably much better suited to pursue track and, and uh, soccer, as, as we call it here. But I think that 
that a lot of those things certainly shaped my interest and gave me an advantage moving forward with, with curiosity and passion towards this profession. And in terms of kind of, I was reading kind of your biography and you've been featured in the, the likes of ESPN, Sports Illustrated, uh, US Today, the NFL and the, M- the MLB networks. Kind of how did those come about and is it through probably grit and hard work that you've been able to get those probably accomplishments? I think that that's a testament to the great people that I've had an opportunity to work with. And I think that I've got an incredible team that I stand on the shoulders of here at APEC. I'm, I get to be the leader of a group of dynamic individuals and, and coaches and support staff that uh, really shine a bright light on myself. And um, at times that gives us great opportunities for coverage and, and people that are interested in what we're doing. And we, we have a lot of athletes. I, I would credit the main part of that success or whatever you want to call it um, to us having unsuspecting athletes do amazing things. And, and what I mean by that simply is we've had a lot of athletes do things that people didn't think they were capable of doing. And that's given us in, enormous opportunity in, in our industry. But the, is, does that come down to people maybe underestimating that probably, um, how would I put it, uh, underdog uh, persona people have. Obviously, if you're not highly recruited, you've kind of got a chip on your shoulder, so you've got a point to prove. Yeah, I think that for our company in particular, I like to collect staff members that didn't just have all the genetic advantages because they know what it's like to be our clients. And I think that that's a psychological aspect that's not always thought about in the hiring process and when you're building a company. And for me, I, I don't know much about business, but I know that I want for our coaches to be empathetic with our clients. And every single one of our clients has a need and desire to improve constantly. And so that's something that we, we see ourselves as an underdog as a company. Uh, we are see, see ourselves as human beings as underdogs, and we, we identify with our clients and even if they are in the NFL or Major League Baseball or Olympic-level track and field uh, or Premier League or what have you, they still have another level, and they need to get there. And so they need someone that knows how to identify with that mindset. And in terms of kind of that underdog mentality, do you think some individuals, once they make it, do you think they kind of lose that mindset, or do you think – uh, if we use kind of the American football as the analogy, they're coming from quite humble backgrounds anyway, so they're going to do everything they can to kind of better themselves. I think it can happen. It just depends on the people that you surround yourself with and and your mindset towards processes or outcomes. I think that one of the things that we really try to do here is develop the proper thought processes and mindset that is associated with long-term success and grit and some of the things you mentioned earlier, because those things tend to take people further at the professional level than talent and, and some of these other qualities that are outliers that can, can actually help them get to that point. So that, that most certainly is a concentration for us from an early age, but it becomes more and more important the higher level our athletes get. 
So you're kind of instilling like a long-term, was it long-term athlete? Uh, I can't think how you, how you say it. Long-term athlete um, development plan. Absolutely. I mean, from a young age, that's our, that's our mindset. These kids, you know, we start with kids at five years old here and we've got programs and training systems that are divided up appropriately for age all the way up to sports specialization in high school and college and professional. But even though we touch on mindset principles at a young age, it changes and things get more specific and long-term athletic development should always be on the forefront of our minds as teachers, leaders, coaches, and parents, because short-term, I think, I think the short-term is a dangerous way to live, and it's a dangerous mindset for kids and anyone to get in the, to get in the habit of, because uh, you ignore some of the things that are going to be here before you know it, and those are the things you're going to live with for a lot longer. And you touched upon, obviously, athlete specialization in high school. What is your thought right. on, obviously, athletes sticking solely to one sport in this day and age against well say their well you could say their even their parents or grandparents which would in some cases be multi-sport uh, athletes in high school I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of controversy on this topic but what I would say is that as these kids are growing and they're starting to form how they feel about certain things from a psychology standpoint and from an emotional standpoint. And then physiologically, their body is going through so many changes. Their, their bones are growing rapidly at a pace that's different than their tendon and ligament structure. And their neural pathways are forming around complex movements. And the more things they can be exposed to through those developmental years before puberty happens, the better for their mental capabilities and for their physical capabilities in the long term. We really try to get the brain to develop a map that the body's going to go to once it enters that period of puberty. And when you go into that, into that developmental period, you've got your peak height velocity, which your body begins to sprout up and parents start to panic because their kids are all of a sudden landing on their heels or running awkwardly or they can't catch a ball anymore. They lose coordination, but it makes sense when you think about it because hormonally things are changing. They're, they're no longer in touch with where their foot is when they hit the ground because their femur may be longer than some tendons or ligaments or muscle structures, soft tissue that is associated with it. And then as they get older, the hormonal changes allow for cross-sectional changes at the muscle fibers. And then you're going to see what type of athlete you actually have. So I think it is silly to limit a kid to a certain sport early on because what you can really do is pigeonhole their development to where their body only adapts to a certain amount of skills and you're only acquiring certain athletic attributes through doing that. So I feel like the more diverse you can be, the more open your opportunities are once that athlete exits puberty, which until that point, if they haven't done genetic testing, we don't really know what their special capabilities are, whether it be, whether it be they have a high uh, ability to train their, their, their lactic threshold, or they may have an abnormal amount of fast twitch muscle fiber, or they may be a, a fast adapter to hypertrophy training. We're not going to know those things. So it's best to keep your options open and develop as broadly as possible 
So those athletes are going to have better choices once they do uh, come out of puberty. Well, there's one, like you were touching upon, Bobby, obviously when we were touched upon uh, long-term development, and if you are pigeonholing athletes, uh, you're kind of shunning away the ones who are going to, you know, like late bloomers, because they could be... Right. Well, if they're kind of well, to some degree, they, if if they're not, as you say it, up to scratch, I don't know, early doors, yeah. kind of discarded. Whereas they could be the if you let them kind of develop a little bit at their own pace, so to speak, they could actually be the better athlete in the long in the long run. There's no question, and there's a great example here in in, in America with a. Uh, American baseball or with baseball in general. And there's, there's an issue where there's an event that, that I, that I detest more than most anything in, in youth sports. And it's called the little league world series. Are you familiar with this? Yes. So the little league world series puts these kids on TV that are, I guess, between the ages of eight and 12. I, I, I don't know exactly. I think they have a few different divisions and they, they put them on this enormous stage where millions of people watch them on TV and they're they're supposedly at a high level of sport uh, because they've they've won all these games to get to these points. These kids these kids have been playing baseball year round. You have to compete and travel year round to to advance to these things. Well, do you know the percentage or or not percentage? Forget that of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. I think it's over six hundred thousand kids that have participated in in the actual World Series event since its inception. Do you know how many of those kids have actually made it to professional sport? I, I'd probably only say five. That, less than 5%. <laughs> yeah, but only five. Oof. And what we found is that the majority of these kids, I think higher than 70% of these kids do not even play varsity level baseball, which in America, it just means it's it's basically when you start keeping score on the high school level. And we've got the junior varsity and the varsity, and I don't know how you guys split it up over there, but most of these athletes don't even make it there. And a lot of it is due to psychological issues and the deformation of the body around the sport of baseball. If you play that sport and that's a sport you specialize in and your body's going through that crucial developmental period, you're going to have dysfunction at the AC joint, at the UCL, um, for your elbow, your hands, everything's going to form around that game. And so when you get into puberty and those bones start hardening and the ligaments and tendons start creating, you have, you have created time bombs that are going to eventually go off. And so either with psychology or physiology, um, people don't know it, but they're, they're sticking a pin in their career before they even get started. It's a huge epidemic here. It's a problem. But in terms of like, from a physiological state, wouldn't it be problematic, as you say, as the bones are fusing up with them getting especially shoulder problems? There's no question. It, it, that is a, an absolute concern, and it's a very real thing that we see happening. What's unfortunate about it is a kid may not see a lot of issues growing up you may get what what is termed here as little league elbow or little league shoulder where you've got inflammation around growth plates but what ends up happening is they they eventually shake that off parents and coaches and athletes will continue to 
going down the same road they've been going. And then they get into high school or uh, college and they tear their elbow up and they'll blame it on the throwing program they're doing at that time. When that damage was seated many, many years ago, and it, like I said, it was, it was a time bomb from a physiological standpoint. And what you'll see when they cut these kids open is they've got bone spurs and deformation and ligaments that shouldn't be formed in certain angles and or angulations that just aren't aren't anatomically correct. And all that is deformities that are adaptations um, that were best guesses by the body for overuse when they were young. But doesn't it come back to probably the pressures put on possibly the young athlete when they're young and they see that as, I don't know, um, kind of a stepping stone to progress their career and probably it's maybe not the right outlook to have on, on a sporting career. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right, James. But I think that, and, and no parent is out to run their kid and no kid is out to run themselves. But I think that there are some misconceptions and there's also a lot of, follow the so-called leader uh, type situation in, in, in here. And I think that people aren't being educated because if they were educated, there'd be a lot of businesses that wouldn't be profitable. And so there are certainly great youth organizations that do organized sport. Um, and there's a lot of them that are, organ- that are educating themselves on what might be best for these kids. But then in addition, or in conflict with that, there's a lot that don't and don't care. And it's a huge business. And, um, the kids development is not always seen as the first priority. So it's just something that I think we've got to get out in front of and educate people. And we've got to be vulnerable and accepting what we've done wrong in the past. And we've got to, to move forward with kids best interest in mind. I think, I think you're right on that point, Bobby, because, I think long-term, obviously, welfare of an athlete is very much paramount. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think the organisations are only to blame. I think, depending on the, your age as an individual, uh, if we use, I don't know, the big one is obviously with with the World Athletics just finishing with uh, doping. Uh, Gatlin mm. saying he he's not responsible for what's a masseuse using cream wise well in the uk if i use that as an excuse when i was an athlete they just turn around and say well it's your body you should know right. what you you should want should should we want to know what is going in it and you should do everything paramount to make sure you are well as clean well not as clean as possible but that you are up to the letter of the law that you anything you take is 100% clean. Yeah, I think the concept of extreme ownership is one that athletes need to do a better job of owning. It needs to be part of the, the process that coaches try to develop, just like they try to develop the body. That kids and athletes from, I mean, athletes that are professionals to even the adults we work with and the small kids, taking responsibility of everything, especially those gray areas uh, where you could say that's not necessarily your spot. If everyone in this world took responsibility of everything that they could, we'd have a lot less world problems and we'd have a lot less of an epidemic in sport. 
But I think we could, you could probably go a step further than that. And you could probably, if you look at the ones, the athletes that they're most successful and are able to uh, have a, a longevity in their career are the ones that are maybe have done, uh, not controversial things, but say done things that are looked upon as abnormal to prolong their careers. Absolutely. I mean, curiosity is the, is a mark of, uh, of greatness in many professions. And I think athletics is not, not understated in that realm, but I think that there are moral responsibilities with that. And, um, I think people know when they're doing wrong and when they're doing right. And I think that there's gotta be experimentation in what works for every athlete. And there's gotta be, like I said earlier, some vulnerability of looking at what could you be doing right or what could you be doing wrong more importantly and figuring out things that work better for individuals as their career goes on. But people know when they're doing something wrong. I mean, you know that from, I mean, your time and in, in competing in the Paralympics in the multiple uh, arenas that you did. Um, the people that are cheating tend to know that they're cheating, but it's another, it's another thing entirely to push the envelope. And I think that that is welcome. And I think that that's necessary. But, I think, like you say, you you know, if you how you're brought up as well, you know right from wrong. Yep. I think I think probably the sticking point in probably any arena is that gray area and what people would define as it. Uh, and are you willing to sometimes go into it? I, I'm probably of the latter. It's like, well, if it's say well we use kind of personal training uh using like well it's kind of a sidetracking issue but using claiming expenses against your taxes well in in the uk that's somewhat of a gray area and it's a big no-no so i won't touch it i'll use it as it's 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 not a gray area it's not to be done so i'm the right side of the law so to speak so it's i think it comes to probably educating athletes, young people to kind of look at what's right from wrong and okay if it's in, in the gray area, so to speak, and we'll say it's something different and it's not going to get you in trouble. Okay, that one is probably okay, but it's not straying into that area if you don't need to. Yeah, I think in decision-making ability in those circumstances is, is is defining of many of our lives. And I think the ability to make decisions under stress, um, especially ones that come with consequences on both sides and or opportunities to gain on both sides, are those are the complex decisions that define us, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of, would you work in, obviously, in American football and track, and we say – athletes nowadays are getting too sports specific could right. athletes not by if they did go back to their roots and say they did multiple sports could they not get better training better training adaptations by doing multiple sports i think that they can but again it depends on how that's executed and what sports they choose for instance I think basketball is one of the greatest sports in the world at developing dynamic athleticism from reaction skills to three-dimensional movement. I mean, you really, you really have to develop in all three planes of motion 
if you're going to be effective on the basketball court. And I think that that's an incredible skill you can't get from playing first base in baseball. Uh, I think that soccer can, can elicit a lot of great developmental tools, gymnastics, track and field. And th- there's several. And then there's other sports that you're not going to get a lot of adaptations physiologically from playing that particular sport. And so I think when a child is growing, there's good activities to put them in that are going to be more developmental focused rather than competition focused. And I think those are probably best early on. Um, but as you get older, competition and the mindset of competition becomes an important attribute to develop as well. So that, that there is a lot of good ways to do it. Um, more, more importantly, there's a lot of poor ways to do it. And I think that you can play multiple sports and still do it incorrectly. For instance, we'll have kids that want to play baseball year round. And because the initiative to play multiple sports is, is being pushed, they will just add in basketball or football and continue to play baseball year round. And they're kind of missing the point. Right. Um, I tell kids all the time, if you, if you can't balance and, and I tell parents, if you can't, if your kid or you can't balance on one leg and reach in three different directions and maintain a sense of balance and stability, you most certainly do not need to be taking pitching lessons three times a week. You have obvious holes in your athletic development that, that should be addressed as a priority to these finite skills and these acute skills that you are trying to accomplish right now. But then does it not come down to with the, with the balance issue? Um, people wanting to, I don't know, to a certain extent, the pitcher is a glorified symbol like the case of the quarterback. It's uh, kind of got a stake. Do you think it's because of that that people are kind of drawn to them? I think it can be. I, I think it depends on the family situation. I, I, we work with a lot of great parents here that in East Texas and in, in Fort Worth. We've got the two locations. And I think that a lot of parents are, are totally settled and, and content with their athletic careers in the past and they want their kid to be healthy and they want to give them every advantage they can to reach their goals and be happy ultimately, which is, which is an awesome thing to see. But there are some parents that really missed out on some opportunities or felt like that they underachieved and they, they really want their kid to be in a position to have those. And they kind of, I think at times it can distort their vision of what they're doing for, for, not themselves, because I think they that they don't feel that way, but what they could do to compensate in a way for their underachievement in their own eyes. And I think that that can put some push some kids into some more permanent or pertinent positions, such as quarterback, uh, playing midfield or forward, or you know being the pitcher. There, the, every sport's got a couple positions that are. Um, looked at as somewhat heroic or the center point or the focal point where, where, whether it be um, accurate or not, that's just how society is. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that, I think that's just a piece of it. But in terms of you say the parent living through their child, wouldn't that put extenuating pressure on the child because they're kind of, well, in some ways it could go one or two ways. They, go down the line of detesting the sport that they're doing because of that obviously overbearing pressure or they 
or it's the other one and the latter, they can't live up to the expectation that their parents are putting on them. Yeah, I think there's complex emotional and psychological situations with parents and kids in sport. And I think that it just depends. Uh, and, and that's such a vague answer, but the, the more knowledgeable I, I get by learning from some great people in my network that <laughs> it depends is the answer almost to everything. And so I just, I feel like that those situations are incredibly complex and personal, but it, it seems to me that most of the time it, it can have a dramatic effect on performance um, positively or negatively. Uh, the kids that we have that their parents are like, I don't care what you do with them. I want you to hold them accountable and I want them to, to do what they want. Those kids seem to have the easiest path from what we've noticed over the last almost 20 years of doing this. The parents that are supportive but allow their kids to fail and allow their kids to learn and allow their kids to be curious um, and protect them from overdoing a sport, they, they seem to have the easiest go at it. And it's pretty consistent. But I think when you, you talk about trial and error, I think it's it's a good mentality to to have because obviously in most cases you learn more from, from losing, obviously, that most people don't like to hear that. But it's kind of a different psyche that you need to have. Obviously, you, you want to have success. But I yep. think from a psychological point of view, we look at our weaknesses and I can, can pinpoint them. But I think talking to a psychologist earlier on in, in my show, uh, we should focus more on what we do well so we can replicate it. And I think as human beings, we don't do that very well because obviously well, we're very, very good at nitpicking at people, what the people do badly. But right. if you, if you actually have to ask somebody, what are your strengths? they struggle to do that. I think it's an important thing to know what you, what you do well, but I think broadening those things from throwing a curveball to being able to understand how your body's moving in relation to throwing an object is, is a, a broader way to develop skills. And I think that athletically we've got to, we've got to look at what they do well. And obviously you don't want to spend all your time on the weaknesses because they're never going to become strengths for a lot of people. Um, I could work on trying to get taller, but that's not going to be effective. Right. No, so, <laughs> I've got, I've got to focus on the gifts that the good Lord gave myself and, and everybody's got those things. They've got to stare down the barrel of the gun at, but um, you, you also have to elevate certain supporting attributes that I think are, paramount for for people and, and and like I mentioned earlier it's so hard to know unless you've done extensive genetic testing what your kid is going to be once they exit puberty and so you don't want to gamble and have your kid working on the skill of pitching for 10 or 12 years and then all of a sudden they become someone that would have been best suited for a different sport or position you just didn't know that they had that type of potential in their muscle fiber or their tendon and ligament system. It just, that's the tragedy that we see and we see missed opportunities with kids that have done that. But then Bobby, does it not come down to the, that kind of underlying issue there that it's maybe the parents, maybe the kids perception 
of the draw of the, you know, not per se the money of the, the professional leagues, but the prestige of maybe aspiring to get there and obviously what comes with it. I think so. I think that that's there. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people also just want to be great. They want to be great right now. They don't care about being, becoming a professional 10 years down the road. And I think there's merit to that too. I mean, we need, we need doctors and lawyers and leaders, uh, teachers, parents, uh, mothers, we need those. So, but I think all development, uh, development for athletics is an incredible metaphor and, and a way to develop for life. And I think there's not many better platforms to do so. So, I think all the goals remain the same, right? And we've got to got to continue on uh, that path, regardless if they make it to the highest level or not. Some might say I'm being quite pessimistic and quite negative, but then on the flip side, if you look at it from a positive perspective, I think kids that do sport are set up—I won't say for life, but get the tools that can set them up, which are quite. Um, you can put into another career, say teamwork, uh, leadership, uh, and things of that nature, which you get from doing competitive sport. Yeah, I think the concept of grit is one that is the most common denominator of success in any profession by any person. And that can be developed so well through sport. And what I mean by grit is Having, having a dynamic thought out plan, not just a goal and knowing how you're going to accomplish the things you're going to accomplish. But then furthermore, that, that's not great. What, what grit actually is, is when things don't go to plan, when you do blow your knee out or you do pull your hamstring or you do lose in the final second or you get last place, you have the, the ability to continue down the, the path of the plan that you know is the right one. And those people that can stick through things through failure and be able to see how that this is still the right thing, even if it's not succeeding in, in, the, in the immediate, in the short term, those people succeed at business, they succeed at life, and they certainly succeed at sport. Well, I think, I think, I think the athletes that think like that, it's, they kind of don't see things as short term, as you say, it's, I think if I use my career as an example, if I looked at it once I retired, did I have a successful career? I didn't see it that way, but that was probably overanalyzing and obviously looking at that that um, elusive, oh, how would you put it? Uh, I wouldn't say unattainable goal of getting to the top of the mountain and getting a gold medal, but how I reflect on it now, a few years down the line, is I had a good career. Okay, I didn't achieve what I set out to, but I did manage to represent my, my country well, in, in multiple sports, which is quite an achievement. And I did have a 10-year career, which Absolutely. is good in itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that the skills that you develop through that process have put you in position to be where you're at now on the other side of that career. And I think that's why you and I are such big proponents of, of youth sport, right? Well, I, I kind of, 
I think I was put into sport. Yeah, I did like sport when I was young, but I think it was my parents had the outs from the outset had, well, obviously it was to instill in me uh, respect, discipline, and obviously keep me out of trouble. So it's, I think as you get older, it's definitely a good tool to probably keep you away from crime and, and things of that nature because uh, you you kind of look at things from a different perspective and kind of reflect on what the consequences could be. Absolutely. There's there's so many elements to it, and it's, it's certainly a strong one. And uh, kind of moving on, Bobby, you've obviously yep. worked now with Nike. How did that kind of relationship kind of come to fruition several years ago i had a employee of mine that worked with um some of the design team there and one his brother was actually on the design team there and uh, i quite honestly i was broke so i couldn't afford to keep him full time he was grossly underpaid so what we did is we tried to contact as many people we could at Nike world headquarters uh, to try to help him get on there as, as a trainer. And, you know, he didn't need my help. He was a great coach and he paid his own way. I got the job and did wonderful things. Um, and, and he got a lot of attention and they asked a lot of questions of where he learned some, his methodology and some of his training practices and training systems. And so I began to get some opportunities uh, speaking at, at Nike world headquarters. Um, but what really, I think, opened it up was, I, I believe it was 2011, one of my athletes uh, sustained an Achilles injury in a game in the NFL. And as you know, that is a tough injury to come back from, especially for a running back in the NFL. But we, he's a great healer, a uh, hard worker, very good kid, and, and the doctors did a phenomenal job. And we were able to get him back full speed in five months. Whereas, you know, with that recovery, it can be somewhere between uh, nine and 18 months to be full speed, depending on the circumstances. Um, we got a lot of attention for that. His head coach was quoted as saying that he was faster than before the injury. And we've, we got a lot of attention for it. And that opened up an opportunity to uh, be a lead speaker at a conference at Nike World Headquarters. Since then, we've worked on creating continuing education. Uh, material for their training network. Uh, we've been been involved in the Nike Youth Athlete, our young athlete projects where we help them uh, design shoes and, and make sure the marketing and the targets are appropriate for kids. Uh, we've worked in, in, in several different scenarios as a consultant and someone that, that works actively in app development and, and other, other arenas. So that is a small part of, of my job. Um, Myself and, and my director and vice president, Kai Heck, uh, we, do, we do a lot of work with Nike. And it's, it's been a pleasure to be a part of uh, such a great company. And Bobby, would you not disagree with the, the, the NFL coach in saying, yes, that player has got faster. But does he mean in terms of straight line speed or obviously because with the Achilles, there's going to be the, the strength is not the muscle's not going to be to its full potential before the obviously the break, but, but would it be right. a case of 
Is he just talking about straight line speed as opposed to uh, unilateral movement type, like change of direction? Well, the coach uh, did not, didn't actually say specifically. I think he was just referring to his play on the field. And it wasn't a strength coach. It was a, it was a football coach. It was a head football coach for the 49ers at the time. And it, it was an incredible compliment and boost of confidence to, to Kendall. But for us, it was a great sign that things were going well. Whether he actually believed that or not, um, you know, he did have his best average per carry, which was a great sign to us. So the, the all signs showed, and he did look very well in three-dimensional movement, his lateral cutting, his um, reflexes and reactivity and, and visual perceptions, ability to decelerate, accelerate, and then straight line speed. Uh, it, it all looked really good, which in my mind makes me feel like that he had a lot of damage before the, that injury. Um, it was a con he got his ankle twisted up in the play. It was a, it was a nasty play. It wasn't just a non-contact injury. Uh, but this is, you're talking about an athlete that already had, has some metal plates in his feet, um, and ankle and on his tibia. So that Achilles already is in a disadvantaged position. Right. And, and so I think going through that process probably improved him. So that was realistic from a few standpoints. And kind of moving on from that point there, obviously, should athletes, don't matter what age they're at, look at obviously installing in their programs a lot of prehab exercise so they don't kind of put themselves in that position in the first place? I think it's always good to have a dynamic training system that thinks of the big picture. It's not usually a strength coach, as you know, will gravitate to a skill that they personally were good at. And then they will try to really improve at teaching that skill. And then they, you find that they really want all their athletes to, to focus heavily on that particular skill set, whether it be Olympic lifting, um, plyometrics, linear speed development. I'm sure you've seen the same epidemic there. But I think that doing the things that aren't always exciting, like eight-point balance reaches or shoulder stability and scapular mobility exercises in line with elements of Olympic lifting or power, three-dimensional power development and plyometrics. I think that is important for every athlete to do uh, because especially as their, their body is forming, you, you don't know what deficits you're going to run into uh, or genetic disadvantages and, and, and furthermore, advantages that you're going to have when you come out on the other side. So I think it's very important for us to be responsible and to develop every part of the athlete. And I feel like that the quote unquote prehab concept is certainly a piece of athletic development because you're talking about shaping and molding soft tissue. And, and that, that is an incredibly important piece of it. Well, not only that, it's, if we say the scapular, obviously we use the example of uh, scapular retraction, you're, Yep. Not you're helping, you're improving this your range of movement as well as your flexibility in that joint. So by being able to do that from I don't know maybe a younger age, you're able to have a better range of movement, thus possibly having a greater strength in that range as well. No, no question. There's direct correlations. Uh, in strength conditioning and, and some of those things are paramount for for an increase in performance 
immediately. And then some of those things are going to be more long-term, as you know, and, and more developmental, but I'm, I'm a believer in it. Uh, like, like most continuing education paths that have been taken through myself and our team, we decided to do those things because we figured out how poor we are at helping athletes in a certain area. So then you tend to find someone that knows uh, that is a, that is a professional and add them to your network um, and try to learn and, and gain a certification or education or even do a fellowship in therapy, therapy and some of those things like we've explored because those things are important and it's important to get out of your initial skill set, whatever you were quote unquote known for and learn learn what is best for some of your athletes that may be outside your proverbial box or, or whatever your, your skill set is. I think, I think, I think within the industry, I think coaches are fixated, as you say, in specializing in be it, if, if they were athletes, they're going to focus on, uh, doing things they know best as opposed to maybe broadening their knowledge and kind of working on stuff that they're not as, well, they maybe not didn't touch upon in their careers and that's maybe helping themselves as well in the gym. I think so. I think that, that all of us gravitate to comfort and I think that can be an easy thing to do, latch on to something you can do well because you're going to, coach it well and those people are going to have confidence in you because they seemingly think that that is that is a strength of yours so but I think as you as you grow you find out how incomplete you know we are personally and how how people have certain needs and we've got a responsibility to those clients to do our very best to investigate uh, the the best scenarios methods systems and scientific principles that we can to elevate them as an individual instead of try to fit them into to what we do. I mean, every, every, everything is not a nail. Uh, even though we have a hammer, everything is not a nail. We've got to figure out, we've got to figure out what's best for individuals. But I think you could probably go a step further than that. And obviously if you do take yourself out of your comfort zone and work with people that are not of the same mold that you came from, you could probably take something that you learn from working with them and take it back into your wheelhouse and do it with, with well, with people who were in the did the same sport as you uh, at whatever age that was. I think so. I think that that's an important point. I think it's a good point. Um, but there's there's variability along a lot of lines there, and so I. I I think that um, I think that's certainly a consideration. And kind of, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier in the episode, and and obviously talking about um, athletes being, I won't say one dimensional, but being very much sport specific. Do they not say because you touched upon not doing another sport for the sake of it? But say, I don't know, if we used uh, American football and track, could they not kind of use the two to gain um, kind of advancements in their performances by doing that as opposed to, what, well, what is the case nowadays doing that one sport all year round? Yes, and you, you 
you bring up a very valid point and that has been adopted in a lot of circles. I think it, I learned a lot from early in my career and you mentioned this in the introduction that GA Moore was a mentor of mine uh, among many, there's so many to name. Um, but all of his football players had to run track. It was a requirement. He didn't ask you, you did it. And that's at the high school level. And so no matter if you're an offensive lineman or a running back or receiver, defensive back quarterback, you were running track and he often would slot you in events that addressed things he needed you to get better at for football, which was a genius strategy. And it, it took the, the athlete's mind off of the sport of football, but it was in a way an off season sport that absolutely elevated his team moving forward. And because of that, I mean, he won several state championships in track and field um, almost as many as he won in, in football. And you're talking about a guy who won more games in high school than anybody in the history of the sport. And that's, that's pretty impressive. And that's one way to do it. Uh, but that's at the high school level. We could go further than that uh, in, in, a youth, in, a, in a youth development mindset and have our kids acquire skills by doing, you know, what we call here the country club sports, tennis and golf, um, swimming, gymnastics uh, wouldn't be considered in that particular realm, but it would be a developmental sport in, in my mind. Uh, track and field. There, there's so many sports that build building blocks of athletic attributes and independent confidence um, before you start putting them in a competitive team setting. But I think if we come back to the high school level, you're kind of bring, by them doing football and track, by them doing track in the so-called off-season, it, they right. would be doing it anyway, obviously, with the football off-season, uh, doing uh, sprints and whatnot and strength and conditioning. But it brings, instead of it being a competition within the, the team and the program, it kind of brings an element maybe more competitive because they have to compete against people from outside of their school. Yeah, I think the development of competition, the, the ability to compete is, is an understated skill. And I think that the, anytime you can develop that skill safely, you should. So I think it definitely exercises that piece of it. Um, and, and we don't really know. I mean, there's no way for us to determine, aside from being able to watch every school, what their off season is like. So it may or may not be uh, similar to a track and field type um, training system. But assuming that it is, there's still, like you said, competitive advantages to actually going through and competing in the sport itself. And I think it's a great way to change things up. And a lot of schools, they're, they're going to have things like that. They'll have their offensive linemen do powerlifting because they want them to get stronger and they want to increase their ability to manage their weight and produce force on the field. And I think that that's a, that's a good mindset and a good thing to do as well. If it's, if it's implemented correctly. Uh, but again, all these things can be done correctly and incorrectly. So it just depends on the tool. You can give me a great tool set, but I'm terrible at any type of handyman work. Okay. But so just cause they're doing the right, they're making the right choices. Doesn't mean um, it's appropriately being executed. And that's a, that's another thing to think about. But then does that kind of mindset come back to it? Does it depend on the coaching staff that is available and kind of using, if you do have that to hand, you tapping into that resource and their expertise. 
Absolutely, it does. It, it depends. Co- coaches matter, and they should be valued higher, I think, because they matter. They It, it absolutely depends on who is coaching that sport and how to, to determine how effective it's the development of those kids is going to be. I mean, I, there, there's no question. There are coaches out there that can take your kids that you're coaching and beat you with them. <laughs> they can take my kids that I'm coaching and beat me with them. And that's a skill that is, is incredibly valuable. And if kids have good coaches, even if, if kids can, if kids and parents can find a good coach, even if they don't particularly like the sport or the activity, they should still consider utilizing that coach for their kids development. That's my opinion. Well, I think it's instilling uh, self-development and things like that. It's looking outside of the box of say, per se the sport. It's, what you can learn from a say, life goal perspective. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And if, it, cause not everyone's goal could or should be professional athletics or even collegiate athletics, but we all want to raise good people and productive people and happy people. So that, that being the goal and that being the goal that we want to push for, I think that, I think that that's a, that's an important choice to make. But then, obviously, as you as you say, not everybody wants to achieve in athletics. But right on the flip side of that, it is one way of getting further on in your education by utilizing that skill. Absolutely. And I think, well, it's probably I've talked to many a coaches over here. And that was probably uh, the argument, I think, in terms of, okay, I think if we use kind of soccer as the analogy here, uh, I think the U.S. is sometimes envious of, say, you know, like the, the academies in Europe because they're putting kids on a pathway to, well, so to speak, succeed in that sport. However, as you, we've touched upon in like this episode, it's maybe not always the right avenue to follow because of, of like you said, with, with the baseball analogy of the, how many kids that actually start out on that journey and, and who actually succeed is very few and far between. Whereas if you look at the American uh, kind of system and way it works, I think it's a little bit better, okay, with the uh, with the basketball one and done. Maybe it does make a mockery of the system to some degree because other kids yep. go in there because it's a requirement on the step to get to the NBA, or are they doing it because they do want to get a degree at the end of the day, as opposed to what the good old fashioned one was? You used the co- the collegiate system as kind of a stepping stone. Uh, not everybody's going to, obviously, as we, we've said, is going to make it onto the pro level, but you do have a, I won't say a backup, but it gives you the tools if you didn't go on, be it for whatever case, even if you did make it to the pro level and you got you got hurt and it was uh, del- well, a chronic injury that, put an end to that career, you've still got something to fall back on, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's an important point. And that 
the sport is is a tool and it's it's not it's not necessarily the end goal and i think i think that the american system is not perfect in any sport especially basketball and what you see i think in basketball the easy one to look at is look at the maturity of the individuals that go through college versus the ones that do the one and done i think you can see that the ones that go to college are usually have better communication skills uh, which serve them well as a teammate as a leader um, as someone that deals with the media and i think those things could be developed on a higher level and because sometimes when you get a lot of money it's hard for you to be motivated to develop skills that are important for your success because you kind of put up kind of put up a wall on who you will listen to and i think that's a disadvantage in the long term and without mentioning any names there's a lot of very talented athletes that could have done could have stood to develop social skills um leadership the ability to be led the ability to communicate with the public a lot better and and not just in basketball but in any sport and i think back back to you with the with the academy situation i mean how many of those kids that go through academy actually make it on that particular club and i think I mean, you and I both know the numbers are, are really low. Usually clubs attain talent from other places. And there's a reason why they, those club, those academies don't, don't work most of the time. It's, it's, not, it's just a sheer numbers game. Like somebody's going to be good. But of the people you have playing soccer there, um, the, the percentages are not great as far as how many develop and how many don't. I think the percentage was um, talking to uh, Brendan Cropley. I had on. I think it was. I think who made it out of academy. I think it was less than one percent, and I was astounded by yeah. that. Yeah. So it obviously doesn't work, and that's a sports specialization model. And people here in America with baseball, they like to point to the Dominican Republic as, oh, they're doing it right for baseball, but just from sheer numbers, I mean, you have a whole country focusing on one sport. And so I don't know what the numbers are there. I'm not, I'm not educated on the numbers exactly, but I do know that they can't afford to play games competitively all the time. They don't, as, as a country, not all, not all over do they have those capabilities. So all these academies that you hear about over there, the kids are working. They're doing street conditioning. They're doing uh, diverse amounts of, of training and, and variation, and they work on skills. I mean, they're hitting they're – hitting, they're hitting bottle caps with the metal poles before they can afford baseballs and baseball bats. They certainly don't have officials and fields available to them all the time. So yeah, they're working to attain skills, but they're not playing all the time. And I think that's the difference between what we tend to think of where, where you're at, where I'm at is from an Academy level of just a lot of competition. It's a lot of game competition and you're so limited in what skills you can develop in a team setting. That's the bottom line. And that's, that's what nobody really wants to talk about. But then I think it comes back to that. If you look at the bigger picture and use that triangle analogy, that's what it basically is because you've got everybody down the bottom and it's going to be kind of a ladder effect and who can climb the ladder the quickest. Who's who? Not in terms of that, but, who's going to get to the top. It's obviously going to be a, a small amount of individuals. Yeah, it's going to be a small amount of individuals. But for you to give an example of saying less than 1% in the academy, and that's there's a lot of pride in the academy system there. And for, 
for us to give the example earlier in this podcast is only five people out of several hundred thousand, not 5%, but only five people have made it to the professional level in baseball. Um, I think that shows us that there's enough proof in that, that that's wrong. That's we, we may not know exactly what the right way is to do it, but we can identify that that is the wrong way. But I think it's, it, it comes down to a deeper route. I think with, with obviously academies in Europe, and if I use probably in, in the United Kingdom more specifically, they installed academies because the national team wasn't doing very well. Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of looking at at the top end of the spectrum as say so to speak uh, the problem, whereas you're kind of installing a system underneath, uh, and maybe you should look at it's the grassroots that needs more investment putting into it because, as we say. Uh, Obviously, not not everybody's going to make it, but if you can help those players acquire better skills, you then have a better pool, uh, have a greater, larger pool of players to pick from, who are thus maybe able to succeed a little bit more and maybe able to make a career out of it. As the I think that the as opposed to just putting that system of academies, which is technically probably the the second rank on the ladder. Yeah, I think that that the mindset of fixing at the ground roots is the right way. I just think that the execution of it is is an important one. And who are the coaches that we're choosing? What's the ratio of developmental focus from a physical and psychological standpoint, athletically versus just skills of soccer? Um, which are wildly important as well. Um, but what is the ratio there? How, how much are we diversifying their um, athletic development and, and their abilities to compete at multiple sports, even though it, it could be an academy that's ultimately focused on soccer? I think that'd be a smart way to go about it. But again, I'm, I'm obviously not in charge over there for a reason. Um, and there's people much smarter than myself that have taken their t- turn to uh, try to improve that. But, I think we can look at other models and draw information from other places and figure out, you know, maybe what's not, what's not something to do. I don't know. In terms of academies, I'm trying to think who diversifies sport wise. It may be like the Spanish clubs would be maybe a good example, but whether or not they diversify their athletes is another question. I'd be interested in, to look into their systems and learn uh, what they do. They've, there's been a lot of success in, in, in some arenas there. But, again, then you got to look at percentages because it's just like in our, in our industry, a lot of people can be like, oh, they, they train so-and-so. And we, people could certainly do that with us too. Um, but, really, what it's, it's not about the outliers or, or if someone trains a high achiever. It's about what are they doing – on average for people or what are they doing that's that should not have happened what was unsuspecting that who who did they get to a certain level that didn't belong there or what is their average improvement but i think when people attach themselves to people at the top of the game that can be really deceiving because some of those people are just they're going to be the freaks that they are and 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 god bless them with incredible ability And, and sometimes you get lucky to have a relationship 
and, and not screw those people up. But it certainly doesn't mean you're great at what you do. But then, Bobby, does that not come back to an underlying issue in society that people are fixated on, quote unquote, the celebrity type model? They are. And, and it does become difficult in this profession to balance that because there's a lot of ignorance that runs rampant. And when you do business and you're an entrepreneur, you have to at least appeal to people that make their decisions, even if they make those decisions ignorantly. And so you've got to have some appeal to people to justify their interest. Um, and you got to do it as responsibly as you can. We, we're in a place in East Texas where there's only 100,000 people that live here. And we've been fortunate enough to have been a part of development for over 25 professional athletes that we started with in grade school. Um, I'm, I'm proud of that achievement. Some of those people were born that way. And some of those people I'd like to feel like we came alongside them and were a part of their development along with many other great coaches and parents and leaders. But then there's been a couple people um, as of late that have walked in, walked in here um, on the cusp of a professional career, and we've benefited greatly from their success. I'd love to think that we've helped them as well, and I think that they they obviously say those things and and walk the walk. But but the truth is is that that is a part of this business uh, and this profession, unfortunately, because people are gonna people are gonna place a value on you depending on their own perception. And if their perception is is that people that train someone that's the best in the game of baseball or best in the NFL is where they need to train. And unfortunately that's, that's the position you have to appeal to. But then shouldn't those people maybe reflect upon it's not the training per se that you get along with. Um, it's more the coach, the trainer as type of, not personality, but as like that relationship that is built is more that probably that human engagement that you probably enjoy more so than the actual uh, grind of doing the training. They should. And James, I think you and I both know that if we could change the way people perceive and make decisions, we could do a lot of awesome things, but they're going to, they're going to make their decisions depending on, whatever their mindset is and their experience and emotional pretenses and all those things. So we've got to be well-rounded in that we pride ourselves in doing things the right way when people get in this building. Um, but we've got to do whatever it takes to get the people that we want to help into this building. So there, there's a, you know, what you don't do is you don't sacrifice your moral compass. You don't, you don't, say that you train someone that you met in an airport, you know, you, you don't do that or, or, uh, that your, that your buddy introduced you to, but you've got to use your advantages responsibly and, uh, make sure that you stay in line with your primary aim and your mission and your promise to your people. I think I could probably go a step further than that. I, I, as people say, oh, you should use your, um, athletic prowess to get people in, but I'm quite humble in terms of, Yes, I think it's probably an athlete's mindset altogether because you don't dwell, you don't, you will reminisce as you did that in your career, but you can't really live in that moment because 
what's in front of you is more important. So say what happened in, I don't know, if we use the, the world champs, the track and field that's just gone, every athlete in that is now focused on, well, they're probably in downtime, maybe doing um, the Diamond League and whatnot now, but their focus is very much on next season. Whereas I think when people say, oh, you should use what you did in your um, academic, athletic uh, career to to get clients in, I, I kind of feel bad at times because it's like it's using kind of a celebrity-ish approach to get people in, whereas like you were attesting to a little bit earlier, it, it should come back to, and I think this probably should apply to, I think anything in life, it's the best person for the job, where as opposed, as opposed to, uh, like you were saying, having that high caliber um, client that you've got that obviously can dictate uh, social media and whatnot. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a, that's a piece of it. And we've all got to figure out, I mean, I think as a young coach, most people, for instance, if it's a strength coach, he might get a client by saying, you know, I can bench press 500 pounds. I certainly know how to get you stronger. And when you're a young coach, I think that is one tactic in a way. It's a very limited and nearsighted way to do it. Um, when I was a young coach, I made the mistake of using my, I, I had, I had a, a decent level of speed. I could run well, especially inside 20, 20 to 40 meters. And you, when you can do that and you kind of use that as a, something to shape your company, as I did, uh, we started off as just accelerate. And it was because I had a high level of speed and I had some great mentors that taught me aspects of speed development. So I, I played on the strength there and I've quickly found out all the holes and well, not all of them at the time, but I found out a lot of blind spots in my training systems and things that I did not know that my clients needed. And I think that's part of the growth process, but I learned a valuable lesson in that in every stage of your career, you have to, it, first of all, you need to have a mission and a primary aim. And as long as you stick to that, when you work with your people, how you get those clients um, is, is just, it's, it's a learning curve. It's a constant learning curve. You just can't ever sacrifice uh, the things that, that mean something to you from a prime primary aim and a mission standpoint, your moral compass to, to do that. But you do have to use what you have at your advantage and through different types and times in my career, it's been different things. And for different people, there's different draws. So you have to be, I think, dynamic as an entrepreneur in this business. Um, and it's going to put somebody off, but, but, like I heard somebody say one time, I don't know how to please please um, everybody, but uh, the best way to make everybody mad is to try to do just that. So you, you gotta you gotta make sure that you do what's best for for your business and your future clients to in in attracting them. I think you probably go a step further than that, Bobby, and and, and obviously the language that you use it's going to it's going to rub some people up the wrong way or sure it's going to people are going to misinterpret what is said because they've i don't know grammatically put an emphasis on a word or whatnot and it, and by doing that 
you're going to sway your thinking one way or another. So it's, I, 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 it's very, like you say, it's, you can't please everybody and you probably shouldn't go about doing that in the first place. No, you can't, but you know, you got a responsibility to your clients. And if you have a lot of passion and you do want to help people, the number one thing you have to do is you have to get people that you do want to help. And so you and I can talk about all these epidemics, but if we don't try to make change, if we don't try to reach people, if we don't try to get, I mean, we've got to get clients, we can't make change. And so some people, we could say they have the wrong mindset if they're looking for a trainer that's worked with an NFL quarterback. Well, that may, that, that doesn't matter. If we want to help that kid, we've got to find a way to reach their parent or reach them in order to get the opportunity to make an impression and change a life. And so sometimes you do things that are uncomfortable and that could be self-marketing. That could be um, associating yourself with one of your athletes in a way that could come across as self-centered or, or cocky or whatever. Um, but that, that's the age we live in and it's a, it's a part of business and uh, it's not my favorite part. Some people do exceptionally well at it and they love it. Um, and maybe they have less training content, but they're able to reach people and good, good, good for them. And I hope that they develop. Others of us have to work harder at that side of it and, and get, getting the clients, um, getting the opportunities to change lives and getting opportunities to, have an effect on these things that we feel like are a problem. And I think that's just part of being a professional. But then wouldn't it come down to probably if they are coming from an athletic background, remembering what they used to do as an athlete and being very adaptable to the situation. If you've come in, you're coming up against, I don't know, a brick wall or um, uh, what would it be? Uh, an obstacle you're not obviously as an athlete going to stop or oh, this is this is a problem or oh, what do I do now you're going to try and adapt and find be it I don't know we'll use the analogy maybe run through it go climb over it you're going to do something to 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 get over that barrier and get over that hurdle to be able to progress yeah again that's a skill that you learn being an athlete that's why athletes are Great, great employees in any profession. You're going to, you're going to get someone that has seen that and, and is more adaptable, versatile, and generally carries more grit. And last question, Bobby, before we wrap up the episode. If you had to summarize this entire episode into one sentence for somebody to take away, what would that be? Boy, that's difficult because um, you asked me to come on your podcast to talk about training and we did everything, but, <laughs> but um, and maybe we could do that again sometime. But I think the one, the one thing that I really try to impress that's kind of our mantra from our company, and I don't know that it encompasses this particular episode, but it would be the statement, uh, be the best you. And that's, that's a huge thing that we try to weave as the culture of our company and that um, I couldn't have done the things that you've done in your incredible career. And, and there's a lot of great athletes that none of my, none of the people that come in here could, could do the things that they do. Um, but that's not what's most important. What is most important is for all of us to continue to strive to be the best version of ourselves. And so be the best you is really what it's about. I mean, we, of course we do training I and mean, we're, we're in this industry, but our mission, our primary aim 
is to educate and improve lives through the field of human performance. So we think that everybody's got an untapped level of greatness that they can bring to realization. And we want to create habits that, that teach people the pursuit of excellence, whether they've been an adult client or a young kid. So I would have to say, be the best you, concentrating on yourself, understanding that horses in a horse race have blinders on for a reason. They're focused on themselves, and that's what helps them run the race best. And we, we can all do the same and continue to improve. I think that's a good mantra to live by. So once again, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's great talking to you. I really appreciate your time. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.